Welcome to the Metron Manager Podcast. Thank you for joining us as we work to recover the dignity and mission of vocation. Learn more at metronmanager.com. Right, welcome to the Metron Manager Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Nowlin. Well, recently I had an incredible opportunity to share in depth on theology of work, particularly missionized theology of work with a group of Christian businessmen in Northern Colorado. I was really excited about this opportunity, and I really felt like I should share this with the broader audience for this program. So I'm going to roll this out and uh, let you guys dive into it. I think you'll really enjoy it. Join me as I take a deep dive into theology of work and why you matter, your Metron matters, and your work, your occupation matters in the kingdom of God. I'm just really excited about this opportunity to impart to you guys some stuff on really what I consider like a framework, a way of doing life and approaching vocation and the purpose of God. I've been going through a really fun phase with this. You know, I, I built out this uh, ministry, the Metron Manager Project, based on the book that Ed mentioned, you know, Managing Your Metron. And, I, uh, you know, like a lot of things, that tried to roll out right when COVID hit, my new ministry kind of rolled out slow. (laughs) And so my book came out and I started the Metron Manager Project in like January, 2020. And you can tell uh, that that, you know, was definitely a difficult time going forward. But during that time, I actually learned a lot and uh, really figured out, I feel like the way God you know what? God gives you like a message to carry sometimes. I feel like this is just a season where God's given me a message to carry to equip the body of Christ and to really do what I call uh, recovering the, the dignity and mission of vocation, uh, which is really an interesting development for me because I came from a traditional kind of career missionary background. I grew up overseas on the mission field, worked in like dozens and dozens of countries. I mean, by the time I was 30, I'd been in like 45 countries or more like, or or even probably 50 some countries by that point. Like, I mean, I had worked all over doing every imaginable type of traditional mission work, but the way that I was trained and understood scripture originally, even regards to the mission of God, so to speak, was that you had to quit your day job to do it. That was like how I understood mission. It's how I read theology. It's how I was trained. And God really opened my eyes, but that's led me into this journey now on what I call missionized theology of work. And I've been able to do a really deep dive with this. And since, you know, over the last, I would say eight or eight months or so, since COVID has backed off to a degree on how it's dominated civilization anyway, um, I've been able to work with a lot of individual folks in the marketplace and also run these corporate consultations where we get people together who are really trying to figure out 
this question essentially, how do I move the kingdom needle in my sphere, in what I call a metron, like what this area that God's given me, my company, my business, what does it mean to actually make and advance, to move the kingdom needle? And uh, we talk about that. You know, a lot of people actually, sounds like some of y'all as well, have hybrid backgrounds where you've been involved in um, traditional ministry or mission expressions, and now you're in the marketplace, you're working, you're running businesses, all this stuff. And it's really hard for people, I've found, uh, talking with them, to reconcile these things and to really see how do these things even fit together? Do they fit together? Are they completely separate? Is this a dualistic universe I'm in? And then you start to deal with the big thing of, uh, what what I call the denigration of vocation. And some people that I know, other guys that write on this and stuff, talk about the Christian caste system we find in church, where you've got second-class believers, which is about 97% of the body of, Cli- uh, body of Christ, and then you've got the 3% that are like the spiritual jobs, the spiritual roles that are like the tier above. You know, they're the starters, so to speak. Everybody else is on the bench. And this uh, this this thing, this imbalance, this Christian caste system is really what I'm going after correcting in this little reformation I'm working on with all of this is to level that playing field and really bring back the dignity and mission of vocation. And I think it's unbiblical. I, I've actually researched where it's come from historically in modern Christianity and in, you know, from the Reformation, a few instrumental moments. But I'm going to blast through some framework here to put some framework out for you guys. Let me dive into this to explain a little bit on the concept of Metron as we get going, because some of you guys might not know even know what that means, which is fair. Not a, a word you use day to day, right? So what is a Metron? It comes out of, uh, biblically, it comes out of 2 Corinthians 10, 13. And it's where the Apostle Paul, he says that he has a sphere of influence or a measure. That's the Greek word is metron that he's using there. And he says, we, however, will not boast beyond the measure or the space within our sphere, but within the limits of the sphere, the metron, which God has appointed us. So he's got this concept uh, that he's, he's like a framework that he's operating from, that he has a metron, he has a space, and within it, there's stuff that he's responsible for, and there's stuff that's outside of it that he's not responsible for. And this is one of the really freeing ideas that you catch with this metron framework, is there stuff that I am not responsible for that's outside of my sphere that God's not telling me to do something about. Right now, we have a lot of challenge, a lot of uh, anxiety and kind of operational lockup in our lives because we get overwhelmed with, man, what am I going to do to win the war in Ukraine? And you're like, oh, Jesus, help us. Like you're so overwhelmed with everything going on that there's stuff that's in and there's stuff that's out. And Paul recognized that about the people he was even working with. And most of Actually, most of Greek society, if you look back in history, was built on the concept of metron. Everything from buildings were built that way and people's lives were organized that way. It essentially organized society. Um, So Paul leverages it because he he just sees it as a universal truth, a principle here. So a metron is essentially a sphere of influence, but I like to actually call it a sphere of responsibility because the idea of influence is, is probably appropriate and right, but these days it's influence says take it or leave it like instagram influencer when i feel convenient you know like it's convenient i'll take some photos or something that's not what 
Paul's talking about, not what he's going after. He's going after responsibility, delegated responsibility from God. And so the, the definition that I work with that I created is a measure of responsibility delegated by God to you in the midst of creation, culture, and spiritual history. So a measure of responsibility delegated by God to you in the midst of creation, culture, and spiritual history. And this is really uh, what gives us the right to matter in the equation. Because a lot of times we, we wonder like, do I even matter? Do I have a right to matter? Am I designed to matter? Or am I just plugging away here until I go be with Jesus? Like, how does this thing actually work? And this is where I want to look at these two commissions in scripture, because this these are both relevant for all of us, everyone in the body of Christ. And even when I talk about work, I'm not necessarily even talking about stuff you're getting paid for. I'm talking about what you're called to do. So you might be a stay-at-home mom, so to speak, or you might be unemployed, but you're still responsible for a Metron. You're you're not it's not what work isn't what you're getting paid for, it's what you're responsible for, what you're called to own, called to and commissioned to own. So um, let, you know, vocation is more what I'm after when I'm talking about theology of work. It's like theology of your calling, your responsibility. So there's two commissions that put all believers on mission. And this is how, we're ma- this is how we get the understanding that we're made to matter. So the first commission is what we call the original commission. Some people would call it the cultural mandate. Um, this is the foundation of theology of work, and and the under, we get the idea of work as worship here as well. It's clearly scriptural, and here's where the here's where it comes from: uh, Genesis one twenty eight and Genesis two fifteen. So one twenty eight says, "God blessed them. God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth." Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Those are the two big words that matter, cultivate it and keep it. Now, cultivate is the word abad, which means cultivate and it means work, but it also means worship. And the meanings are kind of fused. They're interchangeable in the original language. So if you were working, you were worshiping. Your work was actual worship. And that was the beauty of the Abad concept in the Hebrew, Hebrew understanding is that uh, and it gives us un- this understanding that work is worship. Fundamentally, it's the prime time thing you do to worship God. Singing on at church on Sunday is not your primary form of worship. But it also gives us this understanding that work is not a result of the fall. It was created before the fall and instituted before the fall. And that's our biggie to get clear in our thinking about theology of work. Because most people, honestly, somehow pick this up in Sunday school that you wouldn't, we wouldn't be working today if Adam, Adam hadn't sinned. And that's really not accurate. I mean, work was the, like Adam woke up and God said, okay, I got a job for you. Like, I mean, it was, it was on from day one. That's what we were designed to do. And it wasn't um, pointless and it wasn't just killing time. It was by design. So Adam and Eve were commissioned to cultivate and work as worship. But what was Adam, you know, what were they actually supposed to do? What was going on? This is where it really gets interesting. And if you think about it through your vocational lens, Adam was essentially tasked with taking responsibility to see the world outside of the garden become like the world inside of the garden. That was why he was given all of those mandates and commissions, cultivate it, keep it, and 
subdue it. If things were already subjugated, there wouldn't be a command to subdue anything. And so this that gets really interesting about how God set things up at the beginning. God actually designed things to require mankind and to require work. He left things on unfinished on purpose because he's all about co-laboring. You know, creation, I say creation is waiting for you. The scripture says in Genesis 2, 5, now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. That's an interesting description of how the world looked outside of the garden. It hadn't blossomed yet. For the Lord God had not sent, not yet sent rain upon the earth because there was no man to cultivate the ground. So God was waiting on mankind before he would send the rain. And this is a, this is a really important, important point to grasp about how God set up the original design is that for creation to work, you have to work. And that's where we really can identify a lot of the breakdown in uh, the world order, so to speak, is that everybody's goal is to get out of work pretty much universally. It's work so you don't have to work, so to speak, rather than work by design for the co-laboring of the purposes of God. And work is always seen as something to you have either like a necessary evil or something you just do so you don't starve or something, you know, you, you can go do something there and meet people and share the gospel. Like, but the actual work of your hands and being present on the scene is where then God brings the rain and then the earth blooms. And if we look around us in our world and we wonder why things are not blossoming, not flourishing, we talk about human flourishing a lot and we look around the world and see where that's not happening. This is where it first was not happening was because mankind had not showed up to work and God had not released the potential that was in the ground with the rain because nobody would cultivate it. And why was why that's why that command to cultivate it and keep it was so important. It wasn't because he wanted it to like, you know, be like pretty trim trees. It's because he was opposed to chaos. He was opposed to things coming up and growing unsupervised and ungoverned and and disordered. He said cultivate it and keep it. So when this stuff grows, your job is to make this part, this new part, look like what's inside the garden. And so the garden was actually an example. It was like a model or a benchmark of what the rest of creation was supposed to look like through the work of mankind's hands. And that was the beauty of the model. It wasn't we were supposed to stay in the garden, is we were supposed to go out and subdue and cultivate and keep this new world that needed to be uh, brought into the order of the garden to the, to the same benchmark. And that's actually what Adam was supposed to be doing. So Adam and Adam and Eve had, you know, had a garden, but what we have is a metron to manage. And that's why I love the analogy runs all the way through scripture, that there's a cultivated, sanctified, ordered space where the presence of God is present. And that is to be replicated out through the rest of the earth, through mankind. That was by the design of the garden. It was the design of the temples in Israel. It was uh, God's plan at the cross. And that's the beauty of the whole thing is at the cross, God said, okay, I'm done with these static geographical places. The connection from heaven to earth is going to be in your heart. Your heart is going to be the container of the garden. And so now what you, who you are is the garden and this metron, this internal space that you are cultivating is then what the rest of the world begins to look like around you. 
So the concept is the world looks like the condition of the world looks like the condition of your heart. Your world around you looks like your inner man, your inner condition. So you reproduce what you are from the inside out. That's how the kingdom operates. Whether it was from the garden out, from the temples out, uh, Noah, Noah received the exact same commission as Adam, spread out, fill the earth, subdue it and multiply. And that's essentially what goes on now from the, from the throne of God in our hearts is the same thing that the garden, from the garden model out. And that's why we're now mobile temples, mobile gardens. And the enemy can't contain that stuff because we're all over the place. There's billions of mobile temples. And this happens, this is how we influence. This is how we are leaven in every lump of dough. <laughs> in the, and that's how the kingdom grows and expands as leaven in the lump. And so it's a pretty beautiful uh, picture we see in scripture, but the same commission applies then and it applies now to us. Just it's a lot easier now for us because the garden's in our hearts. We carry that with us. So here's where it gets really interesting on missionized. So I call it the great recommission. You know, it's the great commission, but it's the great recommission because it's essentially Jesus is echoing what was said in the original commission, even to some exact wording. So this is what I call the missional connection. It says, and Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. We all get that part of the great commission baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We all get that part. And teaching them to observe. This is the part we don't talk about because no one really knows what this is about. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Some translations say obey all that I've commanded you. But this word observe is a loaded term, and it's really important because the word observe is the Greek word tereo. And this Greek word tereo is the exact same word as the original commission where it says to keep what was created. So cultivate and keep. Cultivate is the word abad. The other word I said was important is keep. Cultivate and keep it. Keep is the word shamar in Hebrew and it's the direct translation of tereo. And in that command, you see that Jesus is echoing the original commission right into the Great Commission. And what it really means, the word Tereo and Shamar mean to keep, have charge of, to guard, <clears throat> to watch over, to protect, save life, obey, and then observe. That's the definition of, a, of Shamar. And so Tereo means the exact same thing. To keep, have charge of, guard, watch over, protect, save life, obey, and observe. Jesus is saying, yes, observe, see it, but what is that? That's the, all this other stuff that connects to the original commission. So this is where I get this idea of missionized theology of work, that the Great Commission and the original commission are practically connected. And, and interestingly enough, they both contain uh, two metrics. I call them kingdom metrics. So within within those words, and with, I mean within those scriptures, you have qualitative and quantitative metrics in both of those commissions. 
Now, we generally understand the Great Commission in a quantitative sense because the first part of it really is all about that. It's stuff you can count. It's, it's hard numbers. How many did you baptize? How, where did you preach? Like, it's very understandable. Um, the second part, the Tereo part, uh, is qualitative reporting, so to speak, and qualitative activity in the, in the Great Commission. This is actually why it makes it virtually impossible to define the Great Commission as a task because you can't complete the Tereo work like a task. And it's, sec- it's 50% of the Great Commission. You can complete maybe the first part in some tasky kind of way, but the second part is an open-ended mandate that demands a lifestyle of Tereo and how you operate. It's how you operate in the kingdom and what you do with what's been counted. And and this is an open-ended mandate of what I call quality assurance in the kingdom of God. And a lot of times... People don't realize this is where actually there's a big breakdown in missional thinking is because everybody talks about the Great Commission being a task. Aspects of it might be described as a task, but the overall aim that Jesus is going for was build quality in the kingdom. And yes, you're building stuff, but what's the quality? The quality matters and and the responsibility of the people in the great doing the Great Commission matter, the metrons. Uh, matter and you matter in that equation so quality assurance is just as much mission as preaching from a stump in india like i used to do and this is something we got to open our paradigm about what mission is because the best people to carry out quality assurance in the kingdom of god are people who are really good at it and successful in their vocations they really know how to do quality or they would not be in business so quality assurance, man, that part of the commission falls heavily on people in the marketplace to carry. Missionized doesn't mean that everyone's called to become like a vocational missionary, just the opposite. It does mean it means that everyone is on mission by virtue of having these two commissions in their life through scripture. So everybody's placed on mission intentionally in the scripture to advance the kingdom of God, to move the, the kingdom needle in their space, maybe not quantitatively, you may not be the evangelist, but you might be the guy who's figuring out how to do redemptive banking and do banking the way that God would have it done in his front door. Like that's, that is on mission. Quality, quality matters in the kingdom of God and the way things are done matter in the kingdom of God. In my book, I dive into this understanding that the means are just as important as the ends in the kingdom of God. And the means are defined by the the ways of God, how we do stuff. Actually, just like this week launched a whole training and equipping program called the ways of work, which is all about this. It's all about how do we connect theology of work, which is the why, to what we're actually doing in the workplace. And it's all about the means, methods, and the soft part of our work in the middle. So I call it the ways of work, and you can see more on that on the website, how I'm bridging that together. But this is the most important part because the, the where things go off the rails in the body of Christ is we try to accomplish these kingdom-minded ideas and ends that are probably noble in themselves, but we do it with the world's tools and the world's system, not with the ways of God. And it doesn't end up producing the results it should. It, does damage. So 
uh, yeah, lots to that. But but by virtue of these commissions, we are all on mission. And because God left things on unfinished, we have an active, ongoing mandate to cultivate and keep everything in creation. And quality assurance matters. What one thing I learned early on and that we need to recognize about vocation is vocation is occupation. And the reason that we call it occupation isn't because it keeps us busy. It's because we are occupying actual space in the kingdom of God and denying the enemy authority in that area. We are taking ground through occupation we occupy through our vocation and it denies the enemy operational power and authority in that space. And if you don't occupy, you don't win. And so where do we get this scripturally? Luke 19, 13, in the, in the parable, Jesus says, and he called his 10 servants and delivered to them 10 pounds, whatever, 10 minas, whatever you want to call it, and said unto them, occupy till I come. This is the root of Christian understanding of occupation in the kingdom is you're occupying till he returns with his full, the fullness of the kingdom of God. We're holding the kingdom to reign. So the servants are commanded to use the resources that the master had that he'd entrusted to them to do business until he returned and from fully obtaining his kingdom, it says, they were told to work and improve upon the condition of the world around them with whatever they had been given, whatever they had to work with, and to hold that territory so the enemy could not take it over and could not take it. And so this is why occupation is so crucial. It's so vital. And um, we, we, we do a disservice to the kingdom of God if we don't understand why we're doing what we're doing. So what do we get from these two commissions? There's a really cool thing we get from them we get authority because to do what God's telling us to do, we need to be able to have power. And the only way you get legitimate power is if you're under authority. And here's a great quote. Uh, this is something you guys, if you latch on to anything operationally, this is how you get things done. We talk about managing your Metron. You'll learn more about it in the book if you go through it. But the, the key to it is understanding spiritual government. How do you spiritually govern the space God has given you? And knowing and recognizing that you're called to do that and that you have the tools to do that is important because otherwise we just abdicate and we say, well, you know, whatever, you know, and this is actually in the garden. It's an important aspect of the garden model because what was going on in the garden was there was a vertical relationship up and down with God that Adam and Eve had that they were stewarding. They were stewarding a spiritual atmosphere with God that was pleasant and welcoming to the presence of God to the degree that he would come down and walk around with them in the, in the flesh, like in, in the physical. But then they were also responsible to cultivate and keep and manage and steward outwards into creation. But what went wrong at creation or at the, at uh, the garden and with sin was sin broke the vertical it broke the vertical relationship with God. So they no longer had the authority to manage outward because you've got to have the authority to do it. Because if you don't have the authority, you don't have the power, you don't have the right to do what you're doing. And, and that's really what was lost at the garden was the right to rule. The devil got that from them. And that's why Jesus makes it a point 
at the Great Commission, he says, okay, I'm back in charge. I've got all authority. I'm giving it back to you. Let's do this thing again. Start at square one. This is how it was supposed to go. So he's giving it back exactly how it was supposed to be. So part of our part of the commission of both commissions is that we're supposed to guard, protect, steward, watch over, and preserve that vertical downline with God. If we want to have any authority to operate this way out into our business, our family, creation. And that's the problem with sin is it breaks that authority structure. It damages the downline and then we're on our own. And that's what happened to Adam and Eve. And they, you know, they got the boot out of their sphere of responsibility because they no longer had the right to be there and do it. And that was, that was the great loss. So spiritual authority, no understanding spiritual authority and how to manage your Metron spiritually is crucial. If you want to see anything good happen outward, so to speak, into the human condition, into creation, into culture. So one of my favorite authors who he's, I've done a podcast with him, we're, we're becoming friends, uh, Dr. Rob Reamer, he writes in his book called Spiritual Authority. He says, kingdom exploits are always done in Jesus' name as Jesus' ambassadors, as sons and daughters of the king. Authority is the right to use someone else's power. That's crucial. Authority is the right to use someone else's power. The classic illustration is a police officer. When you see a police officer standing in the road with her hand up, you stop. It isn't that she has more power than you as you drive along in your SUV. You have far more power, but she is standing there unprotected. But she has authority. The, that officer has a relationship with the government. She carries the badge and her name and the name of the government have been united. This is really important if we understand spiritual authority. When Jesus gives us authority back, he's uniting our name with the government of the kingdom of God and saying, okay, you're now in, you're the cop. It's not because you're awesome or more powerful, it's but because our names are united. And, and so therefore, when the enemy driving the SUV sees you, he stops with, when you've got your hand up. It isn't because you're awesome, it's because you represent something that's awesome. And he doesn't want to mess with that. And so this is where we get our confidence to manage our Metrons. It's not that we're super cool or we're Superman, it's that when we put our hand up and say, no, or yes to something, we're backed up by the kingdom of God. And that's why you have a spiritual right and a responsibility to govern. So that officer, he says, acts and speaks on behalf of the government. So when she holds up her hand, you stop. That is authority. And this is how we govern in the spiritual aspect, so to speak, of our metrons, is that we are constantly when we're on mission we have a lens of how we see the world around us how we see the met our metron how we see everything going on and we're recognizing okay that is not authorized by the kingdom of god that right there so i say no i say stop i don't necessarily force them to that thing to stop i just say no in the name of jesus and this government i represent that's not allowed in this space or Conversely, we see something that is representing and representational of the kingdom of God, and it's a good thing, and it's growing. And you say, no, I'm going to cultivate that. I'm going to say, come on by, drive that vehicle right by. You're through. You're welcoming things in, and you're keeping things out. 
You're spiritually governing that space. And when you abdicate that role, you're dropping the ball on both commissions because that's really what it was about was authority. And, and this, yeah, this concept is super important because honestly, you can't fix most things in the natural. So what do you do when you can't use words? This is a big one. This comes up all the time because especially with the world we live in. So 1 Corinthians 4.20, Paul addresses this in a way. He says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk. It's not about words, but it's about power. He doesn't care about, he said, you show me your, you know, your words, I'll show you my power. Like you want to compare notes, he says, this is what it's about. So in, in this vein, what matters is your ability to exercise spiritual authority. Because where are you getting, where are you deriving your power? You're authorized to use power, not against people, not to control anything, not to manipulate anything, but to decide what comes and what goes in your spiritual space. And sometimes if you do that, the stuff you don't want to see in your Metron anymore will go away because it's been deauthorized by your authority. And that's really how you see things change. You got to deauthorize it in the heavenlies before you move in any way in the natural or you talk about it. And, and if you start with that, managing that vertical part of the mandate with your garden, uh, you get a lot of stuff done in the physical that you wish you would see get done and you don't know how to get it done. And so if Paul is not interested in our words, but our power, that gives us a little bit of encouragement where we can't use words. So if, we're, if we aren't demonstrating the power, we shouldn't be using words anyway. That's my conclusion. If you're not moving the meter in power, you shouldn't be talking about it. Otherwise, you're just going to add to the hypocrisy pile. Like that's what's going to be going on and that's what will be called out. So how does that work in our lived reality? You know, we, we tend to think that, you know, making transformational impact in our Metron hinges on this finding the right way to use words, this intellectual approach. But people don't want to hear it. Even in Christian companies, like we have a lot of Christian companies around here and I talk with the uh, managers, the owners and stuff. And they're like, even the Christians don't want to hear it. They're like, nobody wants to hear it. <laughs> they're like, they're just done with the words, like done with the talk, done with the Christian-y things. Like, but, no, but people are still claiming Christ. I mean, it's just a mess. So they're like, what do I do in this situation? You have to understand that God, he wants to back you up. He wouldn't have commissioned you as that police officer to let you get run over by the SUV. That's not what is, he's not out to destroy you or set you up to fail. He told you to do something because he's going to back your play. <laughs> that's, and that's why you can do what you do. But you got to understand his character and nature to actually be effective. And that's why being, a, you know, when we talk about discipleship and equipping in the church, it's not so that you can like polish your halo. Um, this is why we're getting discipled and equipped is so that you can become what I call a kingdom operator. You're getting, you're getting yourself together here for the purpose of managing up and out in your commission. You're stewarding, guarding, protecting that vertical relationship and that welcoming space with God, which then permeates out into creation and the human condition. And you you have a reason to be getting equipped. It's not like, oh man, it's just Sunday school. 
heck no. It's because you got to be able to understand the character and nature of God and that he wants to back your play and what he wants you to do and how to hear God on that. I mean, the whole thing is an operational norm. Like you got to be able to do operational norms here to be able to manage your Metron and actually advance the kingdom of God. Like if you don't know what you're doing, like, or that God wants to do it, you won't step out. You just hide, you go into recluse mode, you know? So we're called to govern the atmosphere. And that honestly, if you, if you learn to do that well and effectively 90% of the problems in the natural world come into order. Because you got to order things in the heavenlies first before you see things come into order in the spirit in the natural, and honestly, that's why most of the problems exist in our world today with chaos and disorder and lawlessness is because it's tolerated in the heavenlies by the people who have the authority to change it. Thank you for listening to the Metron Manager Podcast, presented by Jonathan Nowlin and the Metron Manager Project. Remember, God has given you permission and a commission to work. Learn more at metronmanager.com.